All right, good morning, Hellos Church. It's good to see you. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here with our church. It's my privilege and my pleasure today to lead us in our time of studying scriptures together in 1 Samuel chapter 30. That's where we're at today. Now, you're probably familiar with the fact that uh, in the Chinese language, at least in its written form, they don't really have an alphabet in the same way that we do, right? They don't really use letters. Instead, they use symbols, these very intricate little symbols, in fact, and I'm sure you've seen them, and there are, there are a lot of them. We have 26 letters in the English language, and we use those letters to make up many, many different words. But the Chinese language has many thousands of unique symbols, more than 50,000, in fact. And it's said that most modern Chinese dictionaries typically include about 20,000 of those symbols. And an average educated Chinese person will typically know about 8,000 of those unique, distinct symbols. And it is these symbols and combinations of these symbols that are used to communicate meaning in that language. It's, it's somewhat different than we do it. It's similar, but it's different. Now, the reason I bring this up today is because in the Chinese language, the word, the word that corresponds to our word for, for crisis, the English word crisis, is made up of an interesting combination of these Chinese symbols. You see, the Chinese word for crisis is actually a combination of two symbols. One of those symbols is a symbol that conveys a sense of uh, danger, and the other is a symbol that can convey an idea of, of opportunity. So the word crisis, then, is, is represented on the one hand as something that can be dangerous, and on the other hand as something that could be an opportunity. And that's pretty interesting. Surely you can understand the first part, the danger part, but the second part, maybe not so much. Have you ever faced a crisis in your life and thought of it as, as an opportunity? Should you? Should we? Now, what's interesting as we continue our journey in the book of 1 Samuel today, I think David does exactly that here in this passage and in this story. We're going to see in this passage David in a moment of crisis, responding to what he's going through, not based on his fears, not based on his feelings, but based on his faith, a very personal faith, as we'll see. And we're going to see David using a very difficult and dangerous situation as an opportunity, as an opportunity to lean into the Lord, to listen to the Lord, and to trust what the Lord was saying to him. And this sort of thing is not easy to be sure, but this is something that is important for you and I to think about. Because the truth is, in every moment of crisis that we face, in every time of trouble or trial or tragedy that you and I face in our lives, and there will be many, most often we will not be able to control what is going on around us or what is happening to us, but, but most often what we can control, often the only thing that we control is, is what we do about it how we respond to what is happening. And David has something important to teach us today, I think, about that as we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30. But before we get there, let us remind that, let me remind us of, of what has got us to this point. In this passage today, we're nearing the end of the book of 1 Samuel, and it's been uh, quite a journey. There have been many ups and downs in this story of God's people and their desperate desire for God to give them someone that they could call their king. They wanted a king. And God gave them what they wanted, but just as God had warned them, things have not always gone so well for these kings or for their people. 
And at this point, with just one chapter to go in the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel the prophet is dead. Saul, the former king, is dead. And God's chosen one, who is to be the next king, King David, has seen wave upon wave of various uh, troubles of various kinds hitting him and hitting him hard on his way to the throne. Last week, it seemed that perhaps things were turning a corner for David and, and easing up for him in some ways. In chapter 29 last week, David found himself in a pretty serious bind. But what we saw was that, that because of God's providence and because of David's prudence, David and his men were able to get out of this bind that they were facing, where they were facing the possibility of having to, having to fight against their own people. And David was greatly relieved, and his men were greatly relieved too. And David and his men were delighted at this point to be heading back to a place called Ziklag. You see, Ziklag had become home base for them, not only for David and for his men, but for all of their families too. And that's where they were going. They were headed home to see their families, to celebrate being with their families for the first time in quite a while. So it, it seemed like things may be looking up for David. But as David arrives at Ziklag with his men in verses 1 to 6 of this passage, there would be no homecoming. There would be no celebration. In fact, when the king and his men arrive home, they arrive to a very uh, disturbing and very distressing scene as they discover that the king's people are in trouble in verses 1 to 6. So let's read, it. let's look at what they find here. When David and his men arrived at the town, they found it burned. Their wives, sons, and daughters had been kidnapped. David and the troops with, with him wept loudly until they had no strength left to weep. David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him, for they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and their daughters. Now, if you've ever found yourself in recent weeks in the study of 1 Samuel asking the question, can things get any worse for this guy named David? Well, here you go. The beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 30 says, yes, it can. Just when things seem to be looking up for David, another wave hits, and it hits harder than the last. But why is that? Why in the world would that be? If this is God's chosen king, and God is with him, and God is for him, why is David's life so hard? so often. This story is going to remind us once again that there is no false advertising in the Bible, is there? This story of David and the Bible as a whole, for that matter, does not hide the truth. It does not give us half-truths. As God's chosen one, David at times in his life on this earth was overwhelmed with wave upon wave of trouble and trials and friends as God's beloved children. So too at times will we. You may be right now. But this story today is going to remind us, too, that though that may have been true for David in his life, and though that may be true for us in ours, that will not always be true of us or for us. Jesus is indeed very clear when he says to us in John chapter 16, verse 33, that you and I, we will have suffering in this world. But then do you know what he says in the very next breath, in the second half of that verse? Jesus also uh, is very clear in saying to us, there's more to the story than meets the eye. He says, be courageous. I have conquered the world, he says in the latter part of verse 16. 
And in a similar way, we're going to see that this story today, this story about a king and about a rescue and about a remarkable victory is going to point us and uh, prepare us for a much greater story, a much greater king, a much greater victory that is to come. And we're not there yet, but we'll get there. But in the opening verses here, the king's people are in serious trouble. David returns home, and this is what he finds. Their homes have been torched, their possessions taken, and their families are nowhere to be found. And these men, David and his men, some of the toughest men on the planet at that time, they they grieved, we're told, and rightly so. They grieved until they had no more strength remaining to grieve anymore. Some got angry, too. Some were pointing fingers. Some were placing blame. Some wanted to kill David. They wanted to stone him. So we see grief becoming bitterness, becoming rage. And so what is David going to do? What would would you do? Let's find out in the next several verses as we see the the type of relationship that David has with God that gets him through this this time of crisis. We see it in verses 6 to 10 uh, that that David's God is is a personal God. Let us pay careful attention to David here. David does not, he does not turn away from the Lord. He does not uh, shake his fist at the Lord. No, he leans into the Lord in a very personal way. And here's what I mean by that. The crisis obviously is hit, and it hit hard. And as the king arrived home, the bottom is dropping out again, but but in uh, verses 1 to 5. But then as you move into verse 6, it says, but, but. In spite of everything that was going on, it says, but David found strength in the Lord his God. And so what does that mean? How does he do that? How do we do that? Now, it's interesting when you look at different Bible translations, there's actually some variation in what the translations say uh, that David was doing here or what David was getting here in verse 6b. Some translations say that David found strength in the Lord. Some say that he was strengthened in the Lord. Others say that David was encouraged or encouraged himself in the Lord in that verse. And so there is some variation there. But where there is no variation at all, what every translation of verse 6b agrees agrees on is what this verse says about about who God is to David. Notice, it, just, it doesn't just say that David found strength in the Lord or in, in God in a distant or generic sense. No, it says he found strength in the Lord, his God. And that little word, his, that phrase, his God, the Lord, his God, that little word there is what is known as a possessive pronoun, that word, his. It's a possessive pronoun in the third person to be specific. And what the author is uh, conveying to us in verse 6 is that God belongs to David. He's his. God is his. And this is very personal and possessive language, and it's a powerful picture we're given here. Because in this moment, as David looks around at the charred remains that he used to call home, even though he could no longer look out and say, uh, there's my city, my house, my possessions, he apparently could still look up and say, "Say, my Lord, my God, you are, you are mine, and I need you. And you see the same sort of language, these possessive pronouns being used by David himself over and over again as he uh, addresses God and goes to God in the Psalms. In fact, well over 60 times in the Psalms, you find David saying to God, you are my God, 
You are my Lord. You are my rock. Possessive pronouns in the first person. He's saying to God, you're mine. You belong to me, and I belong to you. And friends, you don't say this sort of thing about someone unless there's a certain depth to uh, the relationship, right? A certain intimacy. You might say that about your spouse or your kids, but you wouldn't normally say that about other pe- otherwise about many people. But this is how David refers to his God, even in his most desperate moments, and perhaps especially in his most desperate moments. He says, you're mine, and I'm yours. So how do you go to God when the bottom drops out? What sort of grammar are you using? What pronouns, if any, do you use when you go to the Lord and when you talk to the Lord? Do you go to him as as the Lord, or do you go to him as, as your Lord? It is one thing to know about God, and it's altogether another thing to know God as, as your God. And as a Christian, I hope you know you belong to him, and he belongs to you. He's, he's yours, and he's, he's mine. And it's this personal faith, this personal intimacy with the Lord that strengthened David and that strengthens us, too, when the bottom drops out in this life. David was able to strengthen himself in the Lord because of the personal relationship that they shared. And you get to see this personal relationship in action in the verses that follow. What you see, I'll summarize here, but what you see in verse 7 is David approaching the Lord and inquiring of the Lord. Lord, what do I do? I need your help. I need your guidance. Verse 8 tells us, David asked the Lord, should I pursue these raiders? Will I overtake them? But you also see David not only talking to the Lord, you see him listening to the Lord and and hearing from the Lord. The Lord uh, met him in that moment and gave him the clarity and the direction and the assurance that he needed most in that moment. In fact, the Lord makes clear to David in verse 8b that David needs to go after the uh, Amalekites and that he would overtake them and that he would uh, rescue his people. And then after David seeks the Lord and after he hears from the Lord, you see David responding to the Lord, responding to the word of the Lord and to what he had said to him. Verse 9 says, David and, and the 600 men, they went. They went in pursuit of the enemy. So David gathered himself, he gathered his men, and they went. All of this following David's very personal interaction with the Lord, his God, through which he was strengthened and encouraged. Then in verses 11 to 16, we see that the king's God, who is a personal God, is also a a powerful and providential God who provides the path forward for his people. The king's path is provided in verses 11 to 16 in an unexpected way. Let's take a look. Verse 10, David and 400 of the men continued the pursuit while 200 stopped because they were too exhausted to cross the Wadi Bezereth. David's men found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. Then they gave him some pressed figs and two clusters of raisins. And he ate. After he ate, he revived, for he hadn't eaten food or drunk water for three days and three nights. Then David said to him, Where... Who do you belong to? Where are you from? I am an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite man, he said. My master abandoned me when I got sick three days ago. 
They raided the south country of the Cherethites, the territory of Judah, and the south country of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. Now, this was not the best time for David and his men to uh, be good Samaritans. They were in search of their families. They had no idea where they were. They didn't even know if they were alive. But David does it anyway. He stops and helps this man in the middle of nowhere before he knew anything about this man. And this Egyptian man, he had been left for dead. He was sick and uh, starving, and David feeds him and restores him and revives him, it says in verse 12, only then to find out who this guy really was. You may have noticed as we just read those verses, this guy was a part of the Amalekite army who had raided and burned Ziklag, who had pillaged and plundered David's city and who had taken their families captive. This man had participated in it all. And so surely David's blood pressure was rising as he heard this man tell his story. But rather than turning on this man, rather than taking this man out when David learned the truth about him, David instead made a very calculated move in verse 15. Look at what it says there. David then asked him, the Egyptian man, will you lead me to these raiders? He, the Egyptian man, said, swear to me by God that you won't kill me or turn me over to my master and I will lead you to them. So instead of taking this man out because of the part he had played in all this, David trusts this man. And it pays off, we'll see. This dying man out in the middle of nowhere who stopped, who David stopped to help, knows the location of the enemy and he knows the location of their families and he offers to help them. Now that's pretty lucky, right? What a coincidence. David was, I believe, quick to notice here that the Lord was up to something. God's providence was essential to David, that is to be sure, and David knew that, but God's providence at some level was also expected by David in light of the promises God had made to him. And I think this is how David could put his trust in this moment and in this stranger when his life was on the line, when his family uh, was on the line too. He sensed that God was up, up to something, and he seized the opportunity and made a pretty bold move. David expected God to be at work in his life in meaningful ways, and he was watchful for what God was up to, and he was ready to play his part in it. And that's what Pastor Andrew talked about last week. That's prudence. And although there are no theological bells or whistles going off in verse 11 the, that notify us that God's providential hand was working in this moment, you and I can see it and sense it, and surely David did too, that this was the quiet providence of the Lord providing a path forward in an unexpected way for David and for his men. God's providence is a beautiful and encouraging thing to reflect upon in our lives as Christians. Do you ever do that? Let me encourage you to do that today, to, to do that this week. What are some of the ways the Lord, your God, has been working and weaving in your life, his plans and purposes for you personally? How have you seen him at work in your life in ways that you know deep down are not accidental, are not coincidental? No, they are providential. One of my most memorable moments of seeing God's providence at work in my life and in my wife Carol's life came pretty early on for me as a Christian. 
many of you know that I didn't start following Jesus until later in life, on March 12, 2012, to be specific, a day I'll never forget. You see, on that day, March 12, 2012, I encountered Jesus in a way that I did not know was possible. It's as if he, he overtook me when I was not looking or asking, and he said, you're coming with me. And I was delighted to do so. It was a remarkable um, Damascus Road sort of experience. He radically changed my heart and my life in a moment's time. And over the course of that first year that follow, of, of following the Lord, I really sensed him calling me into ministry. I sensed him calling me into seminary and into ministry and, and leading me really to, to leave my secular career that I'd spent 15 years establishing. And all of this was happening pretty quickly, a little bit too quickly at times for my wife, Carol, to be honest. There were big changes happening in my life and as a result of uh, in our lives. And I was considering some very big decisions that impacted not just me, but, but her as well and our family too. And so one day in late 2012, Carol was heading out of state on a business trip. And I was driving her to the airport and I thought I'd use that opportunity to to have a conversation with her about all this. So we're driving down I-5. I remember saying to her, I think that God is telling me something. I think that God is telling me to leave my career behind and to attend seminary and to enter the ministry. That's what I said. I think God is telling me to do this. And what Carol said in response to that, she said, I don't think that's what he's telling you at all. And needless to say, from there, the conversation didn't go so well. And I dropped her off at the airport, and off she went. But later that night, after arriving at her t hotel, Carol called me, and she said she had something to tell me. She said something very strange had happened to her that day at the airport. She said she had been sitting there in the airport, kind of minding her own business, when these three men came, and they, uh, they sat down, lit literally right around her, when there were many other places they could have sat. And she said before long, they struck up a conversation with her, and it became clear that all three of these men were pastors. And they were headed off to a pastor's conference of some sort in some other state. And she said to them, oh, that's interesting, because my husband is thinking about going to seminary. And they asked her where and why, and she told them, and they basically said to her, yes, he should go to seminary, and that's where he should definitely go. One of the guys gave Carol his contact info and said he'd be happy to chat with me about my plans and uh, about my decisions. Now, friends, leading up to that point on that day, I don't think my wife Carol had ever had a conversation in her life with a pastor. And here she had three pastors sitting down around her, affirming to her not only that I should go to seminary, but, but where I should go to seminary. And get this, when Carol got up to leave that day to go catch her flight, she said to these three pastors, gosh, what a coincidence that I met you today. And one of the pastors kind of chuckled and said, well, maybe. But we like to think about these sorts of things instead as, as divine appointments. The truth of the matter is God used that moment in that airport to make himself known to Carol in a certain way, to make known to her that he was defining a, a new path forward for, for me and for us. He used that situation and those pastors as a turning point for softening Carol's heart to what he was doing in mine. And she came around surprisingly quickly after that 
And she said, maybe this is what you're supposed to be doing. At times, our God providentially paves the way and provides the path for his people to follow in unexpected ways. Who would have known that this seemingly random interaction in the airport that day would be such an important turning point in the lives of Carol and myself? And in a very similar way, as we get back to David's story, who would have known that this seemingly random act of kindness by David toward this Egyptian man in the desert would turn out to be the key to his entire rescue operation? Because look at what happens next in verse 16. So he, the Egyptian man, led him, him being David, and there were the Amalekites spread out over the entire area, eating, drinking, and celebrating because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. And so the king's path was provided for him. Uh, this Egyptian man leads David uh, right to the enemy, and then we see that David takes them out in the next verses. He defeats them. And then we see in verses 17 to 20 how this victory, the king's victory, is a complete victory. Verse 19, nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest, including the sons and the daughters and all the plunder the Amalekites had taken. David, it says, got everything, everything back. It's a pretty powerful picture here. The king's people are taken captive by their enemies. They are helpless. They are hopeless. They are in need of rescue by their king. And here comes the king, King David, riding in and doing exactly that. David recovered what had been taken. Every person, every possession, everything. David got everything back, it says. But not only did the king get everything back that the enemy had taken from them, they also got everything back that the Amalekites had taken from other people too. Remember back in verse 16, just a moment ago, it talked about the great amount of plunder that the Amalekites had that they had taken from many other conquests too. And so there is a sense in this story in which the king, King David, not only got everything back, he got everything back and then some. This rescue operation, this rescue and restoration that he achieves is not only complete, it is in a sense, beyond complete. It's more than anyone could have expected or imagined. And then in the final verses of this passage, we see not only that the king's victory is complete, we also see the king extending grace generously. Afterwards, we see that the king's grace is decisive in the final verses of this chapter. Now remember earlier in verse 10, not all of David's men went into this battle and uh, to fight this battle and to win this battle. There were 600 men, remember, but only 400 went with David to fight the Amalekites. And do you remember why? We're told that the 200 stayed behind from the battle because they were, they were too tired to continue. It says they were too tired. And now in verses 21 to 25, after this rescue is complete and after this uh, victory is complete, you see David and the 400 men who fought and won this battle with him returning to the 200 men who were tired and needed rest. And look at what happens beginning in verse 21. It says, when David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to go with him and had been left at the Wadi Bezerah, they came out to meet him and to meet the troops with him. 
when David approached the men, he greeted them. But all the corrupt and worthless men among those who had gone with David argued, because they didn't go with us, we will not give any of the plunder we recovered to them, except for each man's wife and children. They may take them and go. And so the 400 look at the 200 who had been resting, and they say, we did everything. We, we rescued your families, and you can have them back, but that's it. No plunder for you. We did all the fighting. We did all the work. This is our payday, not yours. But David, in verse 23, says, hold on a minute. He says, my brothers, you must not do this with what the Lord has given us. He protected us and handed us over to the raiders who came against us. Who can agree to your proposal? The share of the one who goes into battle is to be the same as the share of the one who remains with the supplies. They will share equally, David says. And verse 25 says, and it has been so from that day forward. So do you hear what David is saying here? He's saying equal pay for unequal work. Equal sharing of the plunder, whether you earned it or not, whether you deserve it or not. That doesn't sound very fair, does it? It actually sounds a lot like a parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 20 about a landowner. And the landowner represents God. This parable is about some workers that the landowner hired to work his vineyard. And it's an interesting parable. Many people read this parable and they aren't quite sure what to make of it. You see, this landowner, he needed workers uh, to work in his vineyard. And so he went out into the marketplace and hired a different group of workers five different times throughout the day, and he brought them back to his vineyard to work. So some of these workers had put in a full day of work, and some less than a full day, and others had worked for only an hour. And then when quitting time came around, the landowner came out to pay the various groups for the work they had done. And here is the sort of uh, punchline of the parable. They all got paid exactly the same amount of money, whether they worked for 12 hours or whether they worked for one. So how does that punchline hit you? Those who worked harder and longer thought they deserved more pay as a result, and so they started to grumble and complain to this landowner. And here's what the landowner said to them. He said, don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? I'm doing you no wrong. I've given you exactly what I promised. Does my generosity bother you? And of course, Jesus did not tell this parable to teach us something about running a business. This is atrocious economics, to be sure. But he did tell this parable to teach us something about the kingdom of God and about what uh, in the kingdom of God is fair and what is deserved by you and I or by anyone else. Jesus told this parable, I think, as a caution to you and I about how uh, we think about the generosity and the grace of God in our lives. And David, in this moment, uh, in this story, is challenging his men in a very similar way. He's saying there is no earning or deserving here at all. Everyone will share equally. And then he explains his rationale in verse 23. He says, this is not plunder that we have recovered at all. It is a gift. It has been given to us by the Lord, and we must act and we must live accordingly. David recognized, just like James would later write in James chapter 1, verse 17, that 
that everything we have, every breath we take, every blessing we receive, every good gift that we enjoy in this life is ultimately not our doing at all. They are gifts from a good and gracious and generous Father above. And when you are able to see things through this sort of lens, it can very much change your life. You realize you have no claim on anything, no grounds for demanding or deserving anything, and you can no longer respond in any situation with greed or with grumbling, but only with gratitude and grace. God's grace and God's generosity were decisive in David's way of thinking here, and they drove his decisions and they drove his actions. That's how he was thinking and living in this moment, and that's what David is reminding his people of here too. He says everyone will share equally regardless of merit. David says equal pay for unequal work. And that doesn't sound fair, and that's not fair, but that's, that's grace. And some people don't like it. Finally, and perhaps most fascinating of all about this passage today, at least for me, is the way that David and this story anticipate the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe deeply here at the Hallows Church that every story in the Bible is to, intended to point us to Jesus in one way or another, and this one, uh, it does so in a remarkable way. Think about what we just talked about, about David's rescue of his people and his victory for his people. The truth is, this story in 1 Samuel chapter 30 is much more than a story. It's more like a preview, a pledge of sorts, a promise of the greater king and the greater victory that would be coming for God's people, for you and for me. And in this regard, David is like a type of Christ in the Bible, pointing us forward to who would be coming and what would be coming and how it would be coming. Think about this with me. Just like David in this story, King Jesus would later arrive on the scene as God's anointed one to find his people in very serious trouble. He would find them oppressed and enslaved, not by, not by their human enemies, but by our spiritual enemies. Just like David in this story, King Jesus would face a moment of intense crisis as he uh, saw the plight of his people and as he considered what it would take to, to rescue them. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we're told that King Jesus was so deeply distressed as he considered how his rescue plan was going to play out, that he was sweating drops of blood. And in this moment of crisis, Jesus, just like David in this story, would find strength in a personal God. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, just as David referred to God as my God, Jesus says, my Father, my Abba Father. First person, possessive pronouns. And you see Jesus in this personal moment of interaction with his father, being aligned with his father's wishes and with his father's will. He says, Father, please, if there is another way. But if there is not, he says, I am ready. Not what I will, Father, but, but what you will. We see Jesus finding strength in his heavenly father as he moves toward the rescue of his people, a rescue that would require the cross. This was the path provided for Jesus to follow, and he would stand and follow the path provided all the way 
to the cross where he would suffer and die and in doing so would achieve a complete rescue of his people, a complete victory for his people over their enemies. King Jesus has broken the curse of sin. He has destroyed the works of Satan. He has removed the sting of death. His victory on our behalf is complete. He has done it all. And so how is it possible that you and I can be rescued in this way? How is it possible that we can enjoy the spoils of this great victory, this cosmic victory now and forever? The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 quite beautifully. He says, for you and I are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. So there's no earning or deserving anything when it comes to the gospel. There's only equal sharing of this uh, generous gift from God received by faith, by grace, through faith in Jesus. Not by what we do, not by what we deserve, but by what we believe. Let's pray. God, thank you for this story and how it points us to Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you would come for us, that you would rescue us in the way that you did. Thank you for the victory you've achieved for us over the enemies who enslave us. And thank you that we can look forward to enjoying the spoils of your victory fully and finally and forever by grace, through faith in your name, Jesus. Amen.